Remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text again from 2 Thessalonians 1. Listen carefully to what God has to say to us this Lord's Day. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you again for your word, God. We thank you for being a God who speaks to us, to your people. A God who reveals himself to us. And help us, Lord, today, not only to hear your word, but to believe it and then to go from here doing it. Accomplish this in us by your spirit and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I won't ask you all to tell me by show of hands who prayed through the directory last week. Have mercy. I hope many of you did, but I don't want to shame anyone who didn't follow through on my encouragement last week to pray. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 for every member of the congregation. And also for those of you who did do it, I want to preserve your heavenly reward. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Two Sundays ago, I began a a new series. It's going to be a a shorter series than the Romans series uh, on prayer. And and so far, uh, both sermons, and, and this one included, in that series have come from the same passage, 2 Thessalonians 1, that I just read. And this is one of the classic texts that describe the second coming of Jesus, making it a fitting text to meditate on 
during this season, during what we call Advent. We're not tied to the church calendar, but one of the benefits of observing and celebrating Advent is that it's, it's scriptures and it's songs and it's themes turn our hearts and our minds to the return of Christ, to our hope, to the coming of his heavenly kingdom to earth. And it's appropriate to focus on prayer during this season because prayer also requires us to think about heavenly things. It also turns our hearts where they need to be directed. And so when we pray, our eyes are on Christ who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. For the next few minutes, by way of introduction to today's sermon on verse 12, the last verse in this chapter, I want to restate some basic ideas that we've considered so far in this series. And this will help to orient those who missed one or, or both of the first two sermons. It also served to remind all of us of the importance of the topic and our goals in, in these studies. Prayer is the greatest privilege imaginable. As Spurgeon said, the very act of prayer is a blessing. Apart from any answers that we may get, communion with God, getting to be with God, and to communicate with God, to talk to the God of the universe, the God who created you and saved you in his Son, is a privilege and a pleasure regardless of how God responds to the specific petitions that you make to him. Spurgeon said that to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. And the greatest of those riches, I would add, is simply fellowship with God. Why then do we not run more often to the, to the blessings and the transforming power of prayer? Why do we so often find something better to do than to, to stop before the throne of grace and petition God for the things he promises to give those who ask in faith? Well, there may be a lot of reasons for our prayerlessness. It, it could be a failure to plan, a, a failure to set aside time to commune with God. It, it may be that you're spiritually cold toward God. Perhaps you're emotionally or relationally bankrupt. Maybe you're the kind of person who avoids intimacy with, with everyone, God included. Or maybe it's just spiritual laziness. Probably all of these factors contribute to our prayerlessness, to one degree or another at various times. But I tend to think that the biggest hurdle to prayer is the one Paul mentions in Romans 8, there he says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Romans 8, 26. That's our main problem. Prayer is intimidating because we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We, we have a sense that there are things we're supposed to say, things we ought to pray for, but we, we so often don't know what those things are. And, and the solution to this problem, as I've as I've been suggesting over the past couple weeks, is praying the scriptures, praying with an open Bible, praying the words of God back to God. 
That's how the godly men and women of old overcame their ignorance about what to pray for. For as long as God has been speaking his words to his people, his people have been praying those words back to him. That's why it's important to have God's word hidden in your heart. Because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth praise. My, my main goal in this series is to teach you to use scripture as the substance of your prayers and as the springboard for your own prayers. The, the things you say to God should be grounded in what he has already said to you. And my assumption in these sermons is that you are already convinced that God wants you to pray, that, that he wants you to talk to him the way a child talks to his father. That's what Christians do, that we communicate with God. He has established a relationship with us, and we communicate with him in that fellowship. That's, that's at the heart of what it means to be a child of God, to be in the family of God. It means you have a relationship with the father, with our father, that is built on trust and communication. Now, last week I said two things are equally true about prayer, about our talking to God. One, God, as our Father, wants us, He wants to hear about the things on your heart, the, the things that concern you, the con- things that concern us, because He really cares deeply about you as a person, the, the way a loving father or mother cares about what's on the minds of their children. That's the first thing. God cares about what's on our hearts. Here's the second thing, which is equally important. Effective prayers are those that line up with what's on God's heart. And one of the best ways to make sure you're praying the heart of God back to Him is to pray His Word, to stick close to what He has said to stick close to his revelation. 2 Thessalonians 1 is a class on prayer. It provides a framework and it teaches us how we ought to pray. In verses 3 and 4, we're taught to give thanks for the signs of grace at work in our in fellow believers and the saints. Saw that in the first sermon. Verses 5 to 10, we're taught to be confident that Jesus will return to give relief to believers, it says, and to judge unbelievers. And we see, we saw how this confidence in God's judgment shapes Paul's prayers and how it ought to shape ours. And within this framework of gratitude and confidence, Paul makes two specific petitions in verse 11. First, he prays that God will make his people worthy of their calling, that he will sanctify them, not that we will become ultimately worthy of of our salvation. That's that's impossible. Jesus is the only one worthy in that sense. But God, after he saves us, he sanctifies us. And we talked about what that worthiness means and what it doesn't mean last week. Second, Paul prays that God will fill his people with his power, the power to to be faithful and fruitful. Well, today we come to verse 12, which first states the two-part goal of prayer, as you can see in the handout, and then lays down the foundation of prayer, 
the goal of prayer is glory. That's the first part of verse 12. The ground of prayer, foundation of prayer, is grace. That's the second part of the verse. Verse 12 reminds me why I pray for you. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the goal of prayer is twofold. The primary goal is the glory of Jesus. That's the ultimate end of prayer. The only ultimate end of prayer is the glory of Jesus. The ultimate goal of prayer is not that believers would become more loving, more faithful, more steadfast, more fruitful, all the things that Paul does pray for in this passage. Those are valued ends, valued goals, but none of them is the ultimate, final end of prayer. The things that we pray for in verse 11 are deeply to be desired. They are things to petition God for, but they are not the chief end of prayer. The ultimate end, ultimate goal of prayer is that the Lord Jesus be glorified as the result of the growing faithfulness and maturity of the believers being prayed for. You see, the the growth, the sanctification of of the believers that Paul's praying for is, is really a means to a greater end of God's glory. So the whole desire of a Christian, when that desire is, is at its best, when it's at its highest, when that desire is functioning properly, is that Jesus Christ be praised above all. Our desire is malfunctioning when we want to win glory for ourselves, when we want to rob God's glory for ourselves instead of giving it to him. So whether we're arranging flowers in the sanctuary or handing out bulletins at the entrance or teaching Sunday school or preaching a sermon or visiting the sick or facilitating a Bible study or attending a prayer meeting or leading in public prayer in some context or participating in a work day at church or showing hospitality when we do any of these things or anything at all with the secret desire to be noticed and praised by men, we are putting ourselves instead of God on the throne of our hearts to be glorified. God's glory is the sole purpose, the chief purpose of our existence. It's difficult to beat the concise but profound wisdom of the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the main purpose of every person? So much so that we could say it is the purpose, the end, the goal. Well, the answer is, is one most of you have heard. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The enti- that's the entire purpose of every human. God is the ground and the goal of our existence. And now that God has become man, 
now that he has taken on our flesh, become incarnate, the chief end of man, as Paul says in verse 12, is to glorify the Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Christ is very God, a very God. He is just as eternal, just as divine as the Father and the Spirit. In Colossians 1, Paul declares that all things have been created by the eternal Son and for the eternal Son. Colossians 1.16. In our, in our adult Sunday school class over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been peeling back the, the layers of our sin problem and learning from Scripture what lies at, at the bottom of it all. Lying at the heart of of every sin is the desire to be at the center, to be the main thing, the, the desire to be God, to be God-like. That was the temptation that brought Eve down. If you eat this fruit, you'll become God-like. You'll be glorious, in other words. It, 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 God doesn't want you to have his glory. He's keeping you from this tree. Eve. He knows how glorious you'll be if you eat of this, of this fruit. At the heart of every sin is the desire to glorify creation above God. That's what idolatry is. The, the desire to glorify creation, worship creation, bow down to creation, serve creation above God, starting with ourselves. We're the first thing in creation that we want to glorify above God. And so when, when pagans bow down to idols, they're, they're ultimately venerating themselves, serving themselves. When they worship the stars, in the end, they're serving themselves. If we participate in Christian service and we secretly hope that such service will bring us some kind of praise or glory, make us central, we have paganized Christian service. We've turned it into a, a self-serving idol. We've pressed Christian living into the service of a pagan man-centered cause. E.A. Carson puts it this way, our privilege as Christians need not be very far advanced before we recognize that even our best service, motivated by the highest zeal, is regularly laced with large doses of of vulgar self-interest. We learn that these sins too must we must confess and seek to overcome. Paul recognizes the problem and articulates the proper goal in this prayer. We pray this, he writes, not that you may be thought of as remarkable Christians or so that you may gain a reputation of perseverance and spirituality and power throughout the, the Roman Empire, throughout the churches of the Roman Empire, but so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So that's the first, the most important goal of prayer. The glory of the Lord Jesus. The second part, the glory of believers, is a bit more startling, isn't it? We pray for one another, Paul says, so that, in the, in the so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. 
And what does it mean for believers to be glorified in Jesus? How, how does that work? This sounds strange at, at, at first reading, at least. Those who are very zealous for the Lord of hosts may even cringe, uh, at least on the inside, at Paul's statement here. After putting the, the glory of Jesus at the center and making it pivotal, absolutely pivotal, does Paul now soften a little and decide that it's okay to, to grab a little bit of glory for ourselves along the way? Well, no, Paul hasn't forgotten what God said back in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no one. That glory belongs to God alone. And he never gives it to any part of his creation ever. And yet, there is a way of thinking about glory that, that makes it appropriate, even biblical, to talk about the glorification of Christians. But before we started this series on prayer, we were, we, we were working our way through Romans. And the last sermon in that series was on Romans 8, verse 30. And in that verse, Paul insists that everyone God, God calls and justifies, that is, everyone God truly saves, will one day be glorified at the return of Jesus. So everyone that's in that golden chain going all the way back to eternity past and God's foreknowledge and his election, everyone in that chain uh, at the end is glorified. will be glorified on the last day. What, what Paul means there is that believers, true believers, will one day be perfected. One day, you will enjoy a resurrection body that is of, of the same order as the resurrection body of Jesus. Philippians 3.21 says that one day Christ will transform your lowly body, and as the King James puts it, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. In other words, your body will be transformed to become like the glorious resurrection body of Jesus. And from then on, you will live in the splendor, the glory of the new heaven and the new earth forever, unending. In your final state of glory, you will be without spot or blemish, having been purged of all sin, all depravity. The presence of sin will be gone from you forever. What a glorious thing. And in that glorified state, you will experience God's unveiled, unshaded glory forever. But, God is also glorifying you in Jesus now. Paul says elsewhere that even now you are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus from one degree of glory to another or with ever-increasing glory. From glory to glory. Even now, that's happening now by the work of the Spirit. 
the, the major transformation of you, of your body, at the end is prefaced in this life by a, a series of many transformations as you become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ in anticipation of your climactic glorification on the last day when that process will be completed. When the good work begun in you will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. At this point, we need to see that there's a huge difference between God's glorification of us, both now and, and at the end, and, and our, what we could call, glorification of God, giving God glory, bringing God glory. When we glorify God, we don't give him anything that, that he would otherwise not have. We don't, we, we, he doesn't change at all. We simply ascribe to him what he is, what's true. We acknowledge, confess what is true. In other words, so, so when, when, when we glorify God, he doesn't change in any way or gain something substantial that he didn't have before. What happens is we ascribe to him the glory that is already and always his. But when God glorifies us, we do change. When he takes us from glory to glory, we become more like him. When we are glorified, we gain something that we didn't have before and that we couldn't have gotten on our own. Only the God of Scripture could create a narrative in which rebellious, self-centered mortals become children of God who increasingly reflect God's character and who will one day experience the unhindered joy of being in the immediate presence of God's glory. And in this narrative, God receives all the glory because as you are glorified, Christ is glorified. This is one of the ways that Christ is magnified. When we are glorified, when we are brought from glory to glory, Jesus is glorified. As you become more like him, he receives the praise that is due his name increasingly. At the end of the age, at the end of your glorification process, when he appears and you see him as he is, and you become like him, on that day, the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you on account of what you have become by his grace. And you will be glorified in him on account of what he has done for you. And all of this will be to the glory of God alone. In verse 12, Paul turns he returns to the eschatology of verses 5 to 10. Because it's his conviction that the Christian life can only be lived faithfully if it's lived in the light of, in view of, with an eye on the return of our Lord. We saw up in verses 5 to 10 that Paul brings this this in time, this eschatological perspective into the framework of his prayers. 
His vision of the end shapes the goals of his petitions for God's people. He wants believers to experience in this world a foretaste of the glory that awaits them, that awaits us in the world to come. He wants God to glorify Christians not only at the resurrection, but also now by transforming us from one degree of glory to another, by conforming us into Christ's likeness and in anticipation of the fullness of final glory. So, the twofold goal of prayer is that Jesus might be glorified in us and we in him. We might ask ourselves at this point, when, when was the last time we prayed? When was the last time you prayed with this two-part goal in mind? The final part of verse 12 lays the foundation of prayer. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the ground of prayer, the bedrock of prayer, is grace, God's grace alone. We're, we're, we're ever aware that God saved us by grace alone. But we mustn't forget that God also sanctifies us by grace alone. Did you know that your sanctification, your growth in holiness, is just as much a gift from God as your initial salvation was? We, we can't sanctify ourselves in our own strength any more than we can save ourselves. Then we can justify ourselves. Our holiness is just as dependent on God's grace as our justification. See, what Paul's doing here is he, he's going to God and asking him to make believers increasingly worthy of their calling. And all the rest... He's asking for all of these things because he's deeply aware that God's grace must be at work in them if any of these things are going to be accomplished in them. He believes that. And it shows, it shows up, that belief shows up in his prayers. He knows that it's all by grace. We produce good works by grace. It's the Spirit's work in us. We become fruitful and faithful by grace. We persevere by grace. By grace, our faith abounds. By grace, our love for one another increases. By grace, we remain steadfast through trials. It's grace alone from beginning to end, from, the, from top to bottom, from left to right, from front to back, all the way down and all the way up, anything good that comes out of us is by grace and by grace alone. Do you see how, how holistic and expansive Paul's prayer in this chapter is? Paul doesn't offer random, disconnected petitions to a God who rarely intervenes in our lives. Paul doesn't see himself or our other believers as basically independent and self-sufficient people who occasionally might want to pray, formulate prayers when we can use a little input, a little help, a special blessing from the deity. No, Paul had a, had a broad, 
cosmic, holistic, all-encompassing vision that shows up in his prayer, a vision of the grace that we received in the past and the glory that is ours in the future. He looked back to the cross of Christ and he looked forward to our final home in the new heaven and new earth. He put God at the center and he placed believers in God's universe, God's creation, which was made by and for Christ, who also redeemed us, redeemed his creation. Florence Chadwick, you may have heard of her, she was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. And in 1952, she was determined to swim the 25 miles or so, I, I saw different reports, 21, 26, 25 miles from uh, Catalina Island to the shore of mainland uh, California. And on the day that she chose to, to swim, it turned out that, that the weather was foggy and she could barely see the boats that were traveling with her, keeping her safe and all of that, from the sharks or whatever, that, that were surrounding her. The fog clouded her vision and destroyed her confidence. And after about 15 or 16 hours of swimming, she finally, she had been begging to, to quit and her, you know, those that were there were, were encouraging her to go on and but finally, she just decided to call it quits. And after she got into the boat, she discovered soon thereafter that she was only a mile or so. One report said a half a mile. Another report said a mile from her goal. And, and so she, she came up short because she was discouraged. But she couldn't see the big picture. She couldn't see where she was where she was headed, she had lost perspective, she had no vision of her goal. And her lack of vision kept her from finishing. She, she later finished that swim. She could, she could have done it, but her, her perspective had been lost. Her vision, her goal had been destroyed. Her confidence crushed. At the heart of our prayers particularly our prayers for one another, must be a biblical vision that embraces, celebrates who God is, what he has done, who we are, where we're going, and what we are to value and cherish most on our way there. If we, if we adopt the biblical vision of Paul, it will drive us toward Christ-likeness, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward prayers prayed in the light of eternity. Paul's vision shaped his prayers, and it, it must, this same vision must shape ours until the things that concern the heart of God become the things that concern us when we are talking to God. Then we will persevere in prayer until we reach that goal, until we re reach that destination, the goal that God has set for us. 
And so, fellow brothers and sisters, members of Christ the King Church, let's add verse 12 to verse 11 and pray for one another again this week all the way through the directory. Let's pray. God, please make all the members of this congregation worthy of their calling. Fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.